Ever since I can remember, fusionism has been a reference point for those trying to make sense of the American conservative movement. Although not entirely one man's creation, an embattled anti-communist and spirited debater, Frank Meyer, gave fusionism its first form. It was Meyer who in 1962 produced In Defense of Freedom, an exposition of fusionism in which American conservatism was presented as a blending of individual freedom with inherited moral authority. Both principles were seen as grounded in Anglo-American political and moral tradition, which supposedly stressed the paramount value of the individual. After the publication and distribution of his book, Meyer was exposed to sharp rebukes, particularly from the Christian right, representatives of which objected to his confounding of individualism with the Christian doctrine of the person. Wilmore Kendall mocked its author for being overly doctrinaire, while Russell Kirk, who had tangled with Meyer previously, complained that his attempt to present himself as a theorist of the conservative movement exposed him as an arrogant ideologue. Behind this endeavor to fuse freedom with tradition and to create a synthesis, synthetic American conservatism was someone whom Kirk accused, quote, of being filled with detestation of all champions of authority. Indeed, someone who was trying to, quote, replace uh, Marx with Meyer, unquote. The scolding should have been expected since roughly a third of Meyer's polemic is directed against the new conservatism, then associated with Russell Kirk. Meyer portrays traditional communitarians as the right-wing counterparts of his hated liberal collectivists. Both fail to recognize the individual as the locus of society, and each seeks in different ways to keep the Leviathan state unfettered. Faced by these censures, Meyer suggested that his work resonated better with those who came out of an Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture than among his snarling Catholic detractors. But there was no evidence this group was more attracted to Meyer than his other critics. We might also observe that some libertarians were deeply displeased with his theoretical constructions. The anarcho-libertarian Ronald Hamowy expressed strong disagreement in modern age with Meyer's intended middle way between authority and liberty. Fusionism's creator refused to abandon his project despite these rebuffs, and two years later, he brought out an anthology of essays that was aimed at lowering temperatures on the right. In preparing this anthology, What is Conservatism?, Meyer made sure it was he who provided the concluding essay, which stated those broad principles all conservatives were supposed to agree on. These included, quote, opposition to the growth of government power, leveling egalitarianism, but also an emphatic rejection quote, of the presently established national policy of appeasement and retreat before communism. Meyer's model conservative, quote, would stand for firm resistance to communist advance and for determined counterattack as the only guarantee of the American Republic and of our institutions. This presentation was at least partly a response to a concern expressed in 1964 by theologian and political philosopher John Hallowell that conservatives, quote, are having difficulty agreeing with themselves as to what they stand for. Meyer attempted to address this concern by cataloging those beliefs that Americans who call themselves conservatives might or should have shared. Quite significantly, at the core of this belief cluster was fighting the communist enemy and prosecuting that struggle with far more determination than post-war presidents had shown until then. We might properly ask how this Herculean task could be achieved or realized without putting on the back burner the struggle against centralized federal power. 
The contradiction between this affirmation, however, may never have entered the author's mind. Meyer, a fierce anti-communist who had once been a dedicated communist, believed passionately in an expanded military crusade against the enemy. But he hoped this undertaking would not interfere with both dismantling the welfare state and strict constitutionalism in, in most other areas of government. His friend William F. Buckley was less sanguine about this juggling act than at least once frankly admitted that the U.S. would have to live in what amounted to a police state for the duration of the struggle against the Soviet empire. The common mission for Buckley, Meyer, and the others who found the National Review and who fashioned the post-war conservative movement was anti-communism and the hope of seeing the Cold War pursued more aggressively. Uh, NR's conspicuous devotion to Senator Joseph McCarthy and his crusade against communism and American government and the military flowed from this preoccupation. Although some figures associated with the magazine did not share that characteristic militancy, Russell Kirk comes immediately to mind, no one who repudiated the common goal would survive as an NR contributor. In the 1950s and even later, Buckley pronounced a ban of excommunication against anti-war libertarians, including Murray Rothbard, Ron Hamowy, and perhaps less explicitly, Frank Chodorov. Even the expulsion of the John Burt Society from National Review, a ritual that covered most of an issue in July 1965, was based partly on divergent views about the Cold War. The Birchers opposed the Vietnam War as wasted American energy and sought to focus on the domestic communist enemy exclusively. <clears throat> um, isolationism was not peculiar to the Birchers' brand of conservatism, but an essential characteristic of the old right that it existed in the US during the interwar years. When the late Ralph Rako praised Chodorov as the last of the old right greats, he was recognizing what for Rako was legitimate American right, the anti-New Deal isolationist one. Opposition to American involvement in foreign wars was foundational for what had once been viewed as American conservatism. Um, it is difficult to discuss Frank Meyer's fusionism without considering this anti-communist leitmotif. Clearly, he sought to supplant an older version of the right with one specifically geared to fight and defeat Nazism's older brother, uh, which was communism. Reviving the libertarian isolationism of the 1930s would not have served the present purpose. And Meyer's fusionism was an attempt to summon into existence an anti-communist conservatism fitting the exigencies of what Frank Meyer characterized as the protracted struggle against communism. Um, <clears throat> there's much else that I discuss here but by way of background, but let, let me sort of come to what my professor at, at Yale many years ago said, the, the meat and potatoes of my argument. Um, I'm not disparaging the importance of trying to persuade a political group that one hopes to influence, but such an activity is usually not of the same magnitude as a more life-consuming, let alone life-endangering mission. Trying to sell a fusionist doctrine is not like staking one's life for a cause. This endeavor is not the existential equivalent of what Ukrainians who are fighting under siege to preserve their independence are now doing, nor is it similar to the risky undertaking of those American colonists who declared independence from the British crown. Although proposing one's consensus position to a divided group may be noteworthy, it falls well short of an existentially defining mission. To restate Carl Schmitt's deservedly famous distinction, we are speaking in this case not about the political as life and death engagement, 
but about a far less consequential activity. Allow me then to make a further, uh, less existentially serious point. Sharing slogans or stating similar views at an annual conference, however exhilarating that experience may be, is not the same as struggling to save an inherited way of life. Hungarian-German sociologist Karl Mannheim defined conservative thought as precisely that, the fashioning of a worldview related to an existing social situation. Conservative thinkers like Burke and his continental counterparts were not designing slogans for political campaigns, nor drawing up unity statements for their colleagues. They were rallying to a way of life that was under attack, an agrarian hierarchical one they intended to preserve. This articulation of a worldview which results from a defense of a threatened way of life seems to me an essential aspect of conservatism historically understood. Meyer's manifesto was designed to unite his fellow intellectuals in a polemical campaign against the Soviet Union. Whatever its merits, his statement of fusionism does not rise to the historic importance of Burke's reflections or Mestre's considerations sur la France, considerations I think in France, it is a document among other documents telling us about the internal disputes besetting the American conservative movement at a particular time. Thus, I would contextualize Meyer's endeavor to find common ground for his fellow conservatives as their movement was attempting to define itself. Although well worth studying, that movement never acquired the large social base of an older conservatism, such as the one that mobilized followers against the French Revolution. That crusade gave rise to a conservatism that lasted throughout most of the 19th century. It was socially situated, something that our populist right has recently tried to become. This populist right taking shape could signify a game changer, um, far more so than the editorials printed in the Wall Street Journal or what newer old faces are admitted to conservatism incorporated. This populist uh, upsurge, moreover, may be historically more critical than even those learned the learned disputations produced by founders of National Review, on whose every word I once hung as a young man. Not surprisingly, the anti-communist alliance that Meyer and the fusionists hoped to forge took a strange turn. What became the dominant force in that movement by the 1980s were the neoconservatives, who by then were well-placed advocates of an anti-Soviet foreign policy. On most issues, the new conservative leaders stood well to the left of Meyer and his critics of the 1960s. Arguably, Meyer's fusionism ceased to be relevant as the neoconservatives imposed their own set of ideas uh, on a changing movement. Despite these twists and turns, self-described conservatives, many of whom worked for the administrative state or as lobbyists, continued to attend the same yearly conferences but I doubt they were there because of an existential commitment or an intensely shared worldview. From what I recall, these attendees were networking professionally or else attended meetings with their friends in the way Englishmen of an earlier era went to the club. Those who came to these gatherings were motivated to a point, but in no way reminded me of Alexander Solzhenitsyn or of another spiritually driven anti-communist Whitaker Chambers, whom Dan McCarthy graphically depicted for the American mind. By no means parenthetically, the conference enthusiasts whom I remember mostly lacked the fighting spirit that Frank Meyer so richly embodied. Lastly, I should stress, 
And nothing I have said is intended to demean the founder of fusionism, who is someone I deeply respect and who is a graduate student I stood in awe of. As a writer and speaker, I have always emulated Frank Meyer's contentious style, even when I disagreed with him, uh, and even when my uh, disagreements caused me to be expelled from the authorized conservative movement. As an historian of political movements, however, I've tried to put fusionism into historical perspective. Others are free to, and I would expect them to dispute my judgments. Thank you. <laughs>